You are listening to sermons from Church on Bayshore in Niceville, Florida. Our mission is to do whatever it takes to see people believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who God created them to be, impacting the world for Christ. To learn more about our church and to find additional resources, including ways to connect, serve, and give, visit churchonbayshore.org. We... um are in a series focusing on Advent as we look at Ephesians chapter 6. And so you can turn uh, in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. And we kicked off uh, this last week by looking at one verse, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, which says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Today, we will build upon this command with what Paul says in the following verses. We have more detail here about being strong in the Lord and why we need to be strong in the Lord. So Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, Paul writes, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we will expound upon verse 12 alongside verses 18 through 20 next week. But today I want to examine what Paul said in verse 11 and verses 13 through 17, which say, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Heavenly Father, I pray that in this moment we would receive what you would have to say, that we would take your word seriously. And God, that we would apply it, that we would not leave here having heard a sermon, but we would leave here knowing your word and wanting to apply your word to our life, and that through the power of your spirit, we would see fruit from that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think there's a temptation with these verses and with really any verse to view them in a fleshly manner. And so with these verses, I think uh, there's a temptation to either love them with an unhealthy love or to despise them. Some people are looking for a fight. They go into a restaurant uh, ready to argue about something. They correct everyone on social media And they feel like everyone in traffic is out to get in their way in their quest to get to raw stress for less in a hurry or wherever. And so for you, these verses kind of fuel an already combative personality. And so you use them to say, the reason that I'm irritable, the reason that I'm always on edge is because there's a battle going on. And so anything that happens that you don't like, you're like, oh, that's the enemy, you know, or if something happens involving your kids, you're like, it's just spiritual warfare. And it's like, no, maybe you need to, never mind. So that's some of you and your mentalities, while others, you're actually practical pacifist. And so you don't like these verses uh, because you don't like any sort of conflict. 
and you view God kind of like everyone's personal genie, and he's just there to say as you wish and give you whatever you want. And so you excuse verses like this that seem to portray God in a different light uh, away. But it is a mistake to read these verses or any verses and impose our preferences on them. The Bible teaches us that God is a God of war. Exodus chapter 15, verse 3 says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This is a line in a song the Israelites write and sing after crossing the Red Sea on their way out of Egypt under pursuit from the Egyptians. The Israelites recognize God doesn't let evil stop his purpose. And they praise God for the fact that he acts, in this instance, on their behalf. In this case, leading to the death of Egyptians who are pursuing them in the Red Sea. Now, some have a hard time with this idea when it comes to a view of power. They think that at no time should a leader or authority exercise a force to accomplish that which is good. And let me acknowledge that absolutely power is abused over and over. And that's throughout history on all levels and in all fashions. But let's also understand that an authority that will not act with force when necessary leaves itself and those entrusted to it vulnerable. And a God who will not act to preserve his purpose is not a God who's worthy of worship. That is at the foundation of our belief. God planned for the redemption of man and nothing would stop that purpose. God has defeated death and God will win the ultimate battle over evil. The truth is the harder thing to grasp is the specifics regarding God allowing evil to win in temporary ways. We want God to fight on our behalf and it is in his nature. As I said last week, from the womb to tomb, life is war. Your mind, your heart, your body, your home, your workplace, your church are all fields of conflict. Satan will not be at peace with us if we are at peace with God. There is a battle that is raging this morning. These verses establish that, and they give us a plan of action in light of this battle. There are a lot of you who understand military operations and concepts more than me. And there are a lot more nuances of military warfare, but almost every effective military operation identifies an objective, the opposition, and the strategy based upon those two things. And I believe in this text, Paul identifies those things for us in this battle we are in. So we are going to talk about our objective, the opposition, and the strategy. The objective is to remain standing. Verse 13 says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. 
So in verse 11, we're told to put on the whole armor of God to stand against the schemes of the devil. In verse 12, we're told more about this war that is raging on. And verse 13 says, therefore, on an, or on account of this, because of the need to stand against this, take up the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. To withstand means to hold one's ground. It's the realization that what we have, we don't want to be taken. Think of a military fort or wall or something similar that says we're going to protect this ground. Paul wants us to think about our life and aspects of our life in this way. And the imperative tense here suggests the urgency of this. He says Satan is trying to take it from you now. Take up the whole armor of God right now. The evil day is now. In the Old Testament and uh, additional writings, uh, there is uh, something that alludes to what you would call apocalyptic Judaism. And it speaks of a day that was coming, an evil day that was coming. And there's a lot of debate about uh, how to interpret uh, those prophecies, uh, whether they already happened or whether they will happen in the future. And, and there might be double fulfillment in, in that, and so it means it happens once and it happens again, or there might be partial fulfillment and that it wasn't fully fulfilled and it will eventually be fulfilled. But what's clear in this letter that Paul was inspired by God to write, Ephesians, is that the day for putting on the whole armor of God is now. The day for the battle is now. You want to then be able to say, I've done all I can to stand firm. That's the objective, is to stand firm in the Lord and the life that he has called you to. But there's an opponent, there's opposition against you standing firm. The opposition is the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The active voice in verses 11 and 13 indicate responsibility. Paul is saying, you put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. And what you are standing against is the schemes of the devil. Schemes, methodia. It indicates a cunning, crafty way. I love that the KJV says wiles, but I don't think many of you know what wiles means. I do think it might be healthy to say the devil's wiling out, though. Like when he tries to get us to doubt God or tries to get us to listen to his emotions, just be like, the devil be wiling out, meaning I'm not following the devil. Okay, anyway, some of you got that. Anyway, let's try not to read things into this text here that are not there because there are all kinds of crazy speculations about temptations that just aren't in the Bible that I don't have time for. But what is there? Well, the devil is here. Again, a lot more speculations about who the devil is. But what do we know most importantly about the devil? We know that he sinned in the beginning. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the writer says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So it tells us that if you're sinning, you're of the devil. And that the devil has been doing that since the beginning. It also tells us that we know why Jesus came into the world. To put an end to that. To rescue us from that. When you think of Christmas, you think of the victory that we have in Jesus. Jesus wins. And yet, Satan attacks. He attacks not because he's unbeaten, but because he has been defeated in principle. He's outraged, and he's using whatever energy he has left to pour out all his anger on God's church. And so we need to fight, not because the end is any doubt, but we need to fight because the damage Satan wants to do in taking souls down with him and bringing as much destruction as he can. You think about if you're competing in a game and you know your team's already won, but then the others who are losing, and maybe in this case don't have good character, begin to really display bad conduct and they begin to try to take you down with them. And if you go in with that, it's gonna jeopardize you in that game, but also maybe you in other ways in the season. And this is how Satan operates. Now, Paul says schemes, and that's plural. Satan has many ways that he tries to get us to fail. And Satan has succeeded in getting people to follow him. Check out John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus is talking here to um, a, a group of people who are opposed to him. And here's what he says. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is talking to a group of people who are against him. And he says, you belong to Satan. Now we need to understand that in this context, Jesus is talking to religious people. He's saying this because they say their father is Abraham. And he says, you might be biologically related to Abraham, but your father is Satan. And so Satan lures people into a life lived in opposition to God's will, certainly because of the promise of success. And he does that with the promise of freedom and getting what we want. And he does that with the promises of pleasure. But one of Satan's schemes is to deceive us into believing that our nationality, our religion, or our morality is protection from following Satan in those ways. But Jesus exposes here, hey, you might, in this instance, it might be your nationality, it might be your religion, it might be your reality, but you're of the devil. Now, I can't help but think of the water boy and how Vicky Valancourt is of the devil, you know, or is the devil. Um, but here we see the reality that that's what Jesus is saying. And Satan is trying to keep people believing that his ways are the ways to happiness. And he wants believers to doubt God's ways and head towards his lies for their life. And this is a constant in our life. And it's going to happen in all kinds of ways. And the answer is submission to God. 
In James chapter four, when he is writing about ways that people follow Satan's ways because of their desires, he says this, submit yourselves therefore to God, verse seven, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't be deceived into believing that nationality, religion, or morality is protection from following Satan in those ways. You can't withstand this battle by joining the right political party or voting in the right ways or falling on the right side of an issue. There are ways that are in line with what the Bible teaches and that aren't. But you can do that and never submit to God. You can't make this go away by going to church or joining a church and making sure it's the one that style makes you feel comfortable. I am certainly not saying that being a part of a church is bad. And I definitely think you should choose a church that actually realizes that God's word is important and not just hype. But you can't think that joining a church is the answer because you can join a church and not submit to God. Listen, you can't protect your family from Satan by putting your kids in private school or homeschooling them or limiting their access to the outside world. And I'm not saying those things are bad. My family has done all of those things. We currently have a homeschooler, a private schooler, and public schoolers, which gives me the right to make fun of any schoolers. <laughs> you can do this, though, and not submit to God. I could go on and on. You have to learn to stand firm in the battle and not think you can always run from it because the scripture says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We should not be deceived into thinking that we are in some kind of culture war. We are in a spiritual war. And if we forget that, we will win the wrong battle and lose the one that matters most. And Paul gives us a strategy for how to win this battle, how to fight this fight. The strategy is put on the armor of God. Put on the armor of God. Verses 14 through 17, I'll read those again. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now there's debate on whether or not Paul is referring to Jewish armor in the, from the Old Testament or Roman armor of the current day. Uh, I think it's Roman, but I ultimately don't think that that is the point. Also, there are they, those today who think the language is irrelevant because of modern warfare and how it's really made a lot of this irrelevant. But the point uh, was so applicable to their context and understanding the purpose of the armor in their context really helps us to understand so much for the battle that we are in today. Each of these six pieces of armor is simply a way of applying the gospel that Paul has spent the first five and a half chapters 
talking about to our whole life. And it's not like, hey, yeah, I'm going to carry the sword of the Spirit, but not wear the belt of truth. Like, it's not that. They all go together. If you're familiar with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, it says the fruit of the Spirit, singular, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Like, it's not like, hey, I'm good at that, and I'm not good at that, and I'm okay with that. In fact, I would say that when we approach either of these texts in that way, what we're saying is we're saying, I'm trying to do as much as I can to make up for what I'm not doing to feel good with God. That's not Christianity. Christianity is, hey, we need to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And in response to what he's done for us, I'm going to then put on the whole armor of God. And so let's talk about these elements. Number one, the belt of truth. Now, there's some speculation that he's referring to a wrestling belt, but I think that would not make sense. Uh, the belt of a soldier... Uh, is what he's referring to. And a belt keeps the soldier's pants up. You don't want to go into battle with your pants falling down. You really probably don't want to go anywhere with your pants falling down, but I think particularly that's true in a fight. It says the belt of truth. That's the Greek word aletheia. I know I've mentioned this several times this year, but it's mentioned several times in the Bible, and it bears repeating. Our culture is feeding us a lie that all truth is relative. And so we say there's your truth and there's my truth. And while that may become true when it comes to whether or not Florida State should have made the college football playoffs, it's not true. Some of you are like, that is not subjective truth. That is objective truth. They should be it anyway. It's not true when it comes to the serious matters of life and eternity. There is objective truth when it comes to salvation, purpose, marriage, parenting, money, Time, purity, character, and the church. Some things are subjective to who and when, but many things are objective. And today we find a people lost about so many things and a church not pointing them in the right direction because we haven't fastened the belt of truth. John Stott says, just as the world is becoming more aware of its need, the church is becoming less assured of its mission. And the major reason for the diminishing Christian mission is the diminishing confidence in the Christian message. We don't have the answers to what the world needs, and we don't have the answers to the questions the world asks us because we don't know the truth. We don't have the belt of truth. We don't know the scripture, and we have, are catching ourselves in opportunities with our pants falling down. The most important dimension of the belt of truth is the truth about Jesus. The scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, I am the truth. Jason Duke says the truth is not just a concept, it's a person. Jesus says to know me is to know truth and to not know me is to totally be deceived about life. Paul has been telling us this in Ephesians. Look at chapter 5, verse 8 through 10. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The belt of truth keeps us from being exposed to the schemes of the devil. The second element here of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. 
A breastplate was a metal plate over a leather jerkin or coat of mail that covered your vital organs. Righteousness means right relationship or right standing with God. To wear the breastplate of righteousness simply means to keep trusting in the gospel, to keep trusting that it is Jesus's righteousness that qualifies me for heaven and which saves me from condemnation. A big focus of the schemes of the devil is to get you to forget where your righteousness comes from, to make you think that because of your sin today, you couldn't have possibly meant it when you trusted in Christ when you were younger, to make you think that because of your struggle with being able to be effective for God, maybe you don't really have God on your side, and to make you think, look at those who have such a better life, God must be disappointed with you. And then he gets you to focus on yourself instead of Christ. One of the great strategies of the evil one is to get us to trust in ourselves rather than to look to Christ. One of the great strategies of the evil one is to get us to trust in ourselves rather than to look to Christ. The breastplate of righteousness covers our heart, and we need to guard our heart as believers. We need to protect ourselves and remember the righteousness that Christ has given us and not trust in our own strength and not trust in the ways of the world. I'm not saying that you can't learn things from other sources, but don't think those are conditions for righteousness. And don't underestimate the power of constantly reminding yourself of the righteousness that comes from Christ. Because we were called, Ephesians 4.24 says, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. We need to be constantly covered with the words of the hymn, my hope is built on nothing less. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus's blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus's name. The third element of armor is shoes for your feet. It says, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Roman soldiers did not wear sneakers that looked trendy like I would. Roman soldiers wore low half boots that consisted of several layers of leather and were studded with hollow-headed hobnails. They were tied up halfway, the sh halfway up the shin and were stuffed in the winter. The purpose of these shoes, these boots, were for stability and mobility. And I think those are words that we should hang on to. We should be ready for times that require stability and mobility. We should be required, or excuse me, ready for times that require stability and mobility. We should be able to stand firm in the gospel when it is being threatened. And we should run with the gospel to where it is needed. Some commentators have pointed out how strange it is that Paul mentions a gospel of peace right in the middle of a passage dealing with spiritual warfare. But it isn't strange. The aim of our war is peace. The aim of good, or excuse me, the good aim of war is peace. The good aim of war is to stop war and violence. The good aim of conflict is to resolve unhealthy conflict. And the aim of spiritual warfare is that people would accept the terms of peace that God holds out, faith in Jesus Christ. And we must be ready to stand firm and to move forward with the gospel. The fourth element here is the shield of faith. 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Flaming darts were one of the heaviest weapons in Paul's day. Perhaps you've seen uh, mo war movies of ancient times where they would sh launch these you know, giant flaming darts that would do an immediate, a great amount of destruction. And Paul says that we have to shield ourselves from that. A shield in their day was uh, a door-like shield that used to was used to cover the whole man. Uh, skins and hides would cover those shields for defending them from catching on fire. What Paul is saying here is that there are some things that the enemy is going to throw at you that the only answer you have is the shield of faith. When you lose someone tragically, the only thing that shields you is faith. When the person who you love no longer loves you, the only shield is your faith. When things are happening to you that just don't make sense, your only protection is faith. And when you have messed up and the condemnation of others or your own thoughts begins to weigh you down, the only way you can make it through it is your faith. And some of us are tempted to think of the flaming darts that come our way. I can absorb one or two of these. I don't have to worry about it too much. It's not harming much. But I'm telling you because of the word and because of what I've already seen planned out, in these moments, it's time to grab your faith in God and shield yourself from Satan's fiery darts of trying to get you to fall. And to remember what Paul established for us in this letter in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, that what happens was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. The fifth element here is the helmet of salvation. I don't think I need to take much time on this. Obviously, a helmet guards your head. A Roman soldier's helmet was very important to them being able to head into battle and still use their head. The helmet of salvation here is referring to using our salvation in Christ Jesus as what guards our mind. I'm being a little repetitive with faith and salvation and righteousness, but so is Paul, so it's him that's being repetitive. He says, let the knowledge of your salvation cover your head. Let it dominate your thinking. Remember, as you go about your life and you go about your battle, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. The last element mentioned here is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I think you know what a sword is. Uh, it's used to attack. Uh, it's used to defend. It's sharp. And he says the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Rima is the word used here, not logos. So it's talking about the proclaimed word of God, not the revealed word of God. I'm so grateful for the connection that Paul is making here because he says, hey, you need to have the sword of the spirit, right? And so the spirit of God wants to use you 
wants to empower you in this battle that you're in. But the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And I think, and you will hear this if you are diving into Christianity, there's a group that says, hey, I know you guys study the scriptures, you focus on the scripture, but you need to lean into the spiritual life. And is it leaning into the spiritual life or is it focused on the word of God? And the answer is yes, it is both and. But what you need to understand about the spirit-filled life is the spirit-filled life is the word-filled life. The spirit of God is connected to the word of God. And your ability to overcome the strategies of Satan is directly proportionate to your knowledge and use of the word of God. Your ability to overcome the strategies of Satan is directly proportionate to your knowledge and use of the word of God. And I will hear people who will say things like, we don't have to focus on the scripture so much because of the Holy Spirit. And I would just tell you that Jesus went into the wilderness. The spirit of God led him into the wilderness. He went unto the attacks of Satan. And how did he combat against the attacks of Satan? With the word of God. So you tell me about your spirituality. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow his example. And his example was knowing the word of God. Absolutely, the spirit of God leads this to come alive in your life. But if you say that you are living a spirit-filled life and your life is not saturated in the word of God, then Satan has deceived you. Because the sword of the spirit is the word of God. And the word of God is going to give you the defense you need and it is going to be what allows you to combat the darkness in this world. So here we see this armor of God that we're called to put on. They all go together. They all go together. It's all about what the gospel is doing in our life. And it's because of the schemes of the devil. And we want to stand firm. We want to stand firm in the midst of that opposition. And the tragedy this morning, as we walk out of here, is this that many of you have no idea we're even in a battle, or some of you. And many out there have no idea. And we approach life as if it were a vacation rather than a battle. Like we're on a playground rather than a battleground. And churches tend to look more like cruise ships than battleships. And there is a spiritual war for the souls of men and women. And there is a spiritual battle to destroy families and to do as much damage as possible this side of heaven. And we need to understand that this is reality and this is a command on the life of a Christian. Let me just give three quick closing additional thoughts very quickly. Number one, there is also an offensive element. Yes, we stand our guard. But as a Christian, if we're fighting the battle and that doesn't mean we're engaging the world, we've missed it. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 through 20, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, if you think of gates... Gates do not attack. And so the gates of hell will not prevail against the 
attack of God's people sharing the gospel. If I build the gate, it might fall on you and you might perceive that it was an attack. But the reality is here, what Jesus is saying is we're called to go and share the gospel. And the gates of hell cannot withstand that. Second thought, there is help. There is help. Philippians 1.27 and 28 says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are, listen to this, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And I want you to notice the corporate nature of what's being said here. Howard Hayner points out in Ephesians, as in other parts of this book, the exhortation is directed to both the individual and the corporate body. This keeps with the dominant theme of the book, unity of believing Jews and Gentiles in one body. Thus, the church, the body of believers, is in this war together. As the Roman soldier did not fight alone, so must believers as a body united under their commander-in-chief stand against spiritual wickedness. A Roman soldier's shield was designed to be linked to his brothers next to him. We have an image of drawing of this. This is what the spiritual battle looks like. And maybe part of the reason that you are not experiencing the strength that comes from putting on the armor of God is that you're trying to fight the battle alone. And God has called us to be linked together in this battle. The last and most important thought is there is already a victor. There is already a victor. There is a battle lead, to lead people into living for Satan, to stop you from living a life that experiences the fruit of God. There are doubts that creep in, but there is no doubt that Jesus wins. And in this Advent season, we look to the reality that God kept his promise, that he exceeded his promise or their expectations of his promise and sending himself, the Christ, into this world to rescue us from sin and evil. But in Advent, we not only look to how God fulfilled his promise and came in the person of Christ, but we look to the second coming of Christ. When he will return in victory and the battle will be won forever. I enjoy watching war movies. And one of my favorite things that happens in these kind of movies, it happens often, is there'll be a battle going on on the ground, or maybe there'll be a scenario where someone's running from someone who's pursuing them. And then they look at their opponent who's pursuing them, who's fighting them, and all of a sudden their opponent flees. And they think, yeah, we are strong. We intimidated them. And here, and I'll just say this because we're in America, then here comes the United States Air Force. And they flee. And one day Satan is going to be crushed Romans chapter 16, verse 19 and 20. I want you to hear this. In the battle that you're going on and the wars that have been raging in your life and the difficulty that you feel like should happen, I want you to cling to this. Romans 16, verse 19 and 20. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you 
but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.